In the United States and around the world, some women's reproductive capacity is deemed worthy of celebration and care, while others is often deemed problematic or undeserving. Scholars call this phenomenon stratified reproduction, and it leads to disparities in reproductive health and the unequal treatment of women of color, substance-using women, and poor women. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Kelly Knight, an Associate Professor in the Department of Anthropology, History, and Social Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. As part of the journal's Case Studies in Social Medicine series, Dr. Knight has co-authored a perspective article about reproductive injustice. Dr. Knight, your perspective article centers around the cases of two women who experienced reproductive injustice, one in California in 2017 and one in Czechoslovakia in 1990. Can you describe those cases and explain how they're representative of this broader issue? Sure. So the first case that comes from California is the case of Miss W., She's called in the perspective, and she was a 39-year-old African-American woman with an opioid use disorder who arrived at the hospital experiencing a preterm birth, and which resulted in a neonatal demise. And the case really highlights her experience during clinical care and then afterwards, in which her fitness as a mother was questioned in front of her by the attending physician who was attempting to train several trainees, and as a result of sort of her fitness as a mother being questioned and also the implication that because she had an opioid use disorder and because of her race and her poverty, as she's assumed to be homeless, that she should have been given an IUD contraceptive along with her substance use treatment, which was methadone at the time. She leaves the hospital against medical advice, and then in her subsequent pregnancy, avoids prenatal care as a result of the discrimination that she experienced both as a substance-using woman and as an African-American woman in the hospital and then had a second negative reproductive health outcome, a second neonatal demise. The second case takes place in 1990, as you mentioned, in Czechoslovakia, and it's the case of Miss J, who was a 23-year-old Romani woman who came to the hospital after having given birth to a healthy baby via cesarean section was pregnant a second time, came to the hospital, and the clinicians, because she began to bleed heavily, assumed that she might be experiencing a placental abruption and decided to perform a second cesarean section on her. During that time, she was given a consent form for what Ms. Jay thought was the cesarean section and turned out to be a sterilization consent form as well, which wasn't properly explained to her. And she discovered that she had been sterilized only post-operatively as a result of learning that from the clinician. So the two cases, while they take place in widely divergent periods of time and social context, sort of highlight the widespread experience that many people who are pregnant have of unjust care during their reproductive health care access. And we chose these two cases both because we wanted to, myself and my co-authors wanted to highlight the widespread experience of what we call reproductive injustice and also highlight the need for, uh, for medical students and clinicians to be trained in this history and to understand the ways in which historic forced sterilization, coerced sterilization and discrimination toward women of color, poor women and women who use substances in the context of reproductive health care produce reproductive health disparities that we see that are persistent both in the United States and also around the world. So how have clinicians, either knowingly or unknowingly, perpetuated these forms of reproductive injustice? 
They perpetuate reproductive injustice sort of in two ways that I'll highlight. One is is structurally, and that has to do with the workforce, uh, clinicians, and the experiences that they have both in medical school and during their training that reinforce discrimination through these assumptions based on social stratification. So the assumptions are that poor women of color and women who use substances don't have expertise about their own reproductive health and their symptoms and experiences in reproductive health contexts are often minimized. So that's a structural issue in the sense that many of the medical students coming through and trainees are not aware of the history of reproductive injustice and forced sterilization that many communities have experienced. And so they don't have a sensitivity or understanding that many women may enter into reproductive health care uh, mistrustful of the kind of treatment that they might experience because of these histories of the abuse of medical expertise, of medical ethics that they've experienced. So that's a structural issue that sort of needs to be changed within the institution of medicine. There's also structural issues around the way that clinical care is organized. For example, for women who use substances, there's a tremendous amount of segregation um, in clinical care settings where they're sort of marked as women who are assumed to use substances or who use substances and their experience in care is highly surveilled and monitored in such a way that they feel increasingly uncomfortable. So there's models that have been developed to increase comfort and advocacy for women who are structurally vulnerable in reproductive health care settings, and they have been shown to produce better reproductive health care outcomes. The other piece that has to do with the perpetuation of reproductive injustice is the interpersonal So forms of blatant discrimination toward pregnant women based on those categories of social stratification, such as race and ethnicity, substance use, class position, housing status, that lead many clinicians to make assumptions about their fitness and about their ability to take care of themselves, to follow prenatal care advice, and to sort of enact the standards to promote a healthy pregnancy and postpartum period. So that can lead to clinicians using clinically inaccurate language, labeling women as we show in in our perspective. One of the most sort of damaging processes that happened interpersonally to Ms. W was that she overheard the attending describe her as a sort of a hopeless case, somebody who, which there could be very little done about to promote a healthy pregnancy, and that's just not clinically accurate. We have a wide body of evidence. For example, in Ms. W's case about how to treat women with opioid use disorders who are pregnant, even when they arrive to hospital late and maybe haven't had as much prenatal care or as consistent prenatal care as we might like, there's a lot of medical intervention and clinically appropriate care that can happen. So having Ms. W be overhearing the clinicians question her fitness as a mother and also assume that there isn't much clinically that can be done to improve her reproductive health outcomes is inaccurate and also produces a stigma that then perpetuates this mistrust and sometimes can promote women such as Ms. W to avoid prenatal care in the future, which could really improve the reproductive health outcomes. So you're recommending education for clinicians about how racism and discrimination affect health outcomes, particularly reproductive health. Where and when do you envision that kind of training occurring? Yes, that's a good question. I think it needs to start early, and I think it needs to continue all the way through the full sort of training and early clinical years and then continue even beyond that in continuing medical education. One of the programs that we've helped start at at UCSF, which is my home institution, 
is to start working to talk about the role of racism and histories of racism in medicine with uh, first-year medical students and then revisit that topic throughout their early training so that they can, once they're into rotation, can focus very specifically on the ways in which they see racism and other forms of discrimination, for example, affecting reproductive health. The other way that we do that is to educate clinicians about the history of reproductive injustice and the history of reproductive justice, which is not a new concept. It's a concept that was developed originally by Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective in the late 90s and 1997, particularly to recenter expertise and recognize that the rights and responsibilities to represent women of color who are likely targets of reproductive injustice to sort of take control and create reproductive health as a human right that focuses on maintaining personal body autonomy to have children or not have children and parent children in safe and sustainable communities. So this is really, reproductive justice is a concept that comes directly from affected communities, particularly women of color in the United States and is more broadly reaching than just sort of a successful pregnancy outcome but has to do with access to contraception, comprehensive sex education, adequate prenatal and pregnancy care, as well as access to safe and legal abortion and other components that we know contribute to wellness in families and promote overall health. So it's important for medical students in the context of education to understand that this one health outcome say, a a successful pregnancy outcome, is linked to a larger question of gender equity and the way that reproductive health fits into that and the ways in which that history, let's say in the United States, but also in other places as we see in Eastern Europe and in the context of Czechoslovakia, have perpetuated negative outcomes that look like they're attached to individual women, but are actually largely socially and structurally embedded in the way that those women have been treated more broadly in society. And if medical students have that awareness, then they're entering into an interaction with a specific patient with a much broader concept of where they're situated, and then they can focus the care with that history in mind. And so one of the things that we've done is take particular cases, like similar to what we describe in our perspective with Ms. W and Ms. J, and then ask medical students and trainees to imagine a different outcome to sort of take each point of the interaction and the later policy context and describe the ways in which this could have created a different reproductive health outcome rather than just focusing on what went wrong but actually help medical students create the conditions of possibility under which the reproductive health outcome would be very different. And there's many organizations within the United States and more broadly that have created these models of reproductive justice that do just that. We'll just mention a few, Sister Song and the Black Mamas Matter Alliance focus on African, particularly on African-American women in the southern United States who are very high risk for poor reproductive health outcomes. A Shiwe program in Vancouver, British Columbia focuses on women with substance use and substance use disorders to ensure successful pregnancy from prenatal through the postpartum period. The preterm birth initiative at UCSF has a place-based approach. They focus very specifically on what are the issues in a specific geographic context, such as the San Francisco Bay Area or East Africa, and try and address what the structural causes are of preterm birth. And then, of course, Romani Crease, which is a leading Roma rights organization, but one of the co-authors of our paper, has been 
deeply involved in to connect the Roma reproductive health rights and the reproductive health and justice and gay experiences to the larger political context of Roma rights within Europe. So finally, looking at that broader policy level, what kinds of actions can clinicians take to prevent disparities in reproductive outcomes and to help ensure that patients can seek redress for harmful practices? Yeah, I think one of the main things that clinicians can do, first off, is to decenter their expertise and make space for the expertise of women with lived experience of stratified reproduction or of reproductive injustice. And the reason why that's important is, as I mentioned, reproductive justice is a concept that's been around for several decades, certainly a phenomenon that's historically been around for much longer than that. And we need to come up with new models of allyship between clinicians and people who are affected by reproductive injustice in order to broaden the conversation so that the clinically appropriate interventions for women are matched with a model of practice and policy that has women with lived experience as the experts. One of the things that we've seen particularly with the perpetuation of poor reproductive health outcomes for African-American women, is that their symptoms are minimized in these contexts and that their expert knowledge is often disregarded. I mentioned the workforce issue earlier, and that has to do with developing a workforce that has patients who are experiencing or at risk for reproductive injustice. They're seeing their clinicians reflected in them so that there's a concordance in the workforce, whether that's on race and ethnicity, on experience with substance use disorder, experience in, in other forms of marginalization so that they feel like clinicians are, are allies in their experience. In the broader policy context, clinicians have what Pierre Bourdieu called cultural capital, which means that they represent authority and expert knowledge in the public domain. So when physicians advocate for public policies, such as treatment on demand for somebody like Ms. W who experienced a loss of her methadone maintenance as a result of a policy that was linked to her pregnancy. When physicians advocate for all persons with opioid use disorder having access to treatment, that goes a long way because of cultural capital. They have an authority and the public really respects their voice in policymaking. So that's another area where students and trainees need to recognize that they can affect reproductive injustice in the clinical domain, through the interpersonal, but also in the structural domain by affecting policies and recognizing the policies that would really make a difference for patients. And that can have to do with issues related to access or authorization of services, services that are needed in the postpartum follow-up for low-income women, such as housing, substance use treatment I already mentioned, reform within the child welfare system or criminal justice reform, which we all know affects which people become structurally vulnerable for reproductive injustice. So those are some areas within policy. The last one I'll mention is medical legal partnerships because there are ways in which physicians can also advocate for individual women who've experienced reproductive injustice and speak up for when medical ethics have been breached or medical expertise has been misused. And I suppose lastly, I would say research on reproductive justice is needed. That's been harder to fund and are harder to get funding for interventions and policies that show promise and promote reproductive justice. And so through scientifically rigorous evaluation, um, those policies and practices could be more widely recognized and adopted. And physicians can advocate and help as part of review committees 
for NIH proposals, for example, can help promote that kind of research, which can increase the evidence base and help promote better reproductive health outcomes. Thank you, Dr. Knight.